Well, good morning. So good to see you all. It's been a long time for many since I've had a chance to um, see you, to be together with you. Um, if I uh, missed getting to say hello to you last weekend, I'm so grateful uh, to be back with you here and back from uh, my sabbatical. And um, what a joy we had last weekend to celebrate baptisms, though, and to just see the stories of lives that had um, been transformed and by Jesus. And as we sang the words of that song, um, that last song we just sang, um, it's the giving up that's the hardest part. Um, and sometimes I would expect you may have sung those words, and maybe that hasn't set deeply in your soul exactly why is that the lyric that we're singing Last week we heard testimonies of friends who have put their faith in Jesus and it was their faith in Jesus came when they had reached the end of their rope, when there was seemingly, it was hopeless. And so often, I think we find in this life that we're striving and we're doing all that we can and we fail. We fail because there's so much pressure to do and to accomplish and to achieve and to push on. We're in the just do it culture to just give up. And rest in Jesus. Now there's a meaning to that and there's things that I don't mean when I say those words. And you can probably figure that part out. But we need to be reminded of who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us. On my second week of sabbatical, I left to head up to the mountains of Arkansas. And I was all by myself. I don't do alone. I don't know if you guys know that very well. Those of you that know me know that that's really not my game. Um, So I texted our elders and I asked them to pray for me because I was going to spend about 10 days completely by myself, alone, with just me, a fishing rod and a bicycle, and the Lord. And I was asking God to remind me of who I am, remind me of who he is. What was I going to do when I was all alone? I do preaching. I do meetings. I do hanging out with friends. I date my wife. I'm a counselor now to my kids. No longer a ruler, just a counselor or an advisor. Those are the things that I enjoy doing. But as I shared last week, those can so quickly get intertwined with who I am. And my life can no longer sort of stand with these different legs to the stool, but kind of come together as one. So as I was able to untangle that a little bit while I was on sabbatical, I got to think a lot about laying that down, giving some of those things up. And Jesus reminded me from Proverbs 18.24 that there's a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You know Solomon wrote those words? Solomon, who, if you've been with us long enough, you remember our study of Ecclesiastes. Solomon, who had it all, achieved it all. He, he literally was the inventor of the Powerball. He had it all. There was nothing he lacked. All those dreams you've been dreaming over the last week, Solomon had. And he said... None of those were a friendly companion to me. None of those lasted as a companion to me. There is one who sticks closer than a brother. 
and that's God. We need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded of what it means to be a friend of Jesus. So let's pray. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to help me. Holy Spirit, thank you for this opportunity to open up your word and for what you have done in my heart. I pray that as we look at these words that were inspired by you to be written down by Matthew, that we might learn something about you, Father. We might be reminded of the love of Christ. Would you do what only you can do in these moments? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you heard that text read this morning, and I should just give one caveat. You probably, some of you are asking this or thinking this, I would expect. Over the next couple of weeks, I just want to sort of sit in this theme of what it means to be a friend of Jesus. It's our practice here at City Church to sort of work our way through books of the Bible. For the next three weeks, we're not going to do that. (laughs) We're going to look at the text and we're going to preach through the text, but we're going to kind of jump around a little bit around on this theme until we enter into our Advent season, uh, which is only, by the way, three weeks weeks away. I know some of your your whole calendar just got a little bit wrecked by thinking about that idea. (laughs) We're going to spend the next three weeks looking at this. And as you heard read in our text, there was a time... When those we know as Jesus' disciples were only known for what they had done. They were only known for maybe their occupation. Or only known for who they were, the ways that they had violated God's law. All the problems that they had brought on the world. And Jesus taught them, as he's taught me, that what I do, whether it's considered righteous or unrighteous whether it seems in the eyes of the world or even out of my own heart sometimes, whether it seems good or potentially flows out of my sinfulness, that because of Jesus, I have a new identity. And it's that identity and living out of that identity that is where I find my greatest hope. And so let's look at this calling of Matthew and the sort of the confrontation that came as he called Matthew this tax collector. As Jesus passed on from there, verse 9 of chapter 9, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. What we know about Matthew in this text, it's also recorded in this way in the Gospel of Mark, is that Matthew is known simply as the tax collector. And for those of you that aren't as familiar with this book, And the sort of historical significance of that language that would be used there, being a tax collector was one of the most egregious sort of um, occupations you could find. He was despised by his people. More than likely thought of as a complete traitor, just hated for this role because he was a means of oppression to the Jewish people, the Israelites. And so this recording of him as a tax collector is something that is significant. It's not just a word that we should skip over too quickly. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. I love that he just got up from his tax booth 
and follow Jesus. There is clearly a compelling call there. And what we can't see in the text, we don't know exactly how this transpired. But we know that his response and ultimately what Jesus in calling him to himself, that Jesus called this disciple out of love. Jesus calls out of love. That's the first thing I want you to remember. This was Jesus looking at Matthew, not seeing him like everyone else saw him as the tax collector, but seeing him as what he would ultimately sort of lead him to be, call him to be. Jesus is in the beginning of his ministry, by the way. He had just performed a lot of miracles, healed a number of people, and as he's healed these people, now he's beginning to call his disciples. And he wouldn't just call Matthew one of these sinners, he would call a whole bunch of sinners. There would be many who would come and follow, and none of them had a resume that made, them, made the world think, okay, these are the people that Jesus would call. These are the people that Jesus would have come and follow him. And so it's really clear that Jesus' criteria for calling is not what you have done. It's not your background. It's not your ability. It's not your own holiness or righteousness. It's what Jesus sees, and it's what Jesus knows of himself. It is love. You know, so often we get caught up in our resumes. We get caught up in all the accomplishments. See, Jesus sees something that we so often can't see in ourselves. And it's not just that he sees something that we can't see in ourselves. It's not just what we are able to discern The key is, is that Jesus called out of his love for Matthew, and he knew what his power was able to do in Matthew's life. It wasn't about what Matthew would do. It's sometimes we get this confused, and we think, well, Jesus called Matthew because he knew that Matthew would then so and so and so and so, and he would change, and he would do all these amazing things, and he'd ultimately write the first gospel. No, Jesus knew that when I call Matthew to myself, I have the power to transform his life so radically and to take him from that tax collector into something completely different to be used by me because that's what my love does. That's what Jesus saw. And so Jesus called Matthew out of that love. He knew the power of his own grace. He knew it did not matter. While it might matter to the world, while it might seem significant to the world, if anything, this was just further illustrating Jesus' power in his ability to take one who had no resume, to take one who the world would say never Call him to himself out of his love for him and see him transformed. The Apostle Paul, we know that story well. Persecutor of the church. One who the rest of the world would never say, oh yeah, that guy's going to be the one who plants all the churches of the New Testament and a third of the New Testament will be written about his life. And No, no one would have ever said that about Saul. But when Jesus called him to himself, he knew his power to transform He knew what he would do. Jesus calls us out of his love. And that love always confounds the world. When Jesus calls, his love confounds the world. Look at the response. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners, I told you it wasn't just Matthew, came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And so Jesus invites himself over to dinner with Matthew, surrounds himself with a bunch of people who have no business hanging out with God, hanging out with 
a rabbi even, for those that didn't quite understand who Jesus was at the time, or a teacher. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked to his other disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They could not understand why Jesus would eat with a tax collector, multiple tax collectors and sinners. See, the Pharisees, unlike Jesus' view of Matthew and how he saw him, these Pharisees found their identity in all the things that they had done rightly. Do you remember Saul or Paul when he's testifying about his conversion and he said to us essentially, I was the Jew of Jews. I had, if you wanted to have a resume, essentially he said, I've got the resume. And I considered it all worthless. It was meaningless to me compared to the call of Christ. These Pharisees, they had the resumes to even prove their own righteousness. They had found their identity and their ability to keep the law, and not just their identity to keep the law, but even to go so far as if there needs to be a new law written, we'll figure something else out. If we find ourselves tempted in this way, we'll do this, and we'll write this law, and we'll write that law, and we'll just keep insulating ourselves so that we ensure that we are righteous. And the Pharisees just can't understand why Jesus would spend time with the unrighteous. When we are confounded by the fact that Jesus would befriend us, we are just beginning to understand grace. When it amazes you that Jesus would call you, would love you, you are beginning to understand the grace that you have received. When it makes no sense to you or to the world that you could call yourself a Christian because you know the sinfulness of your own heart, you know perhaps your past, you know how prone you are to wonder, you know, as I often tell you, that you're a train wreck. And yet, Jesus calls you a friend. You are beginning to understand his grace. Conversely, When you tell God and tell the world, let me explain my resume to you. Let me tell you how many cups of coffee I've made at City Church Cafe. Let me tell you the amount of dust I've inhaled, parking. (laughs) Let me explain how often that golf cart has failed and I've pushed it uphill. I even, I walk uphill to go to church both ways. (laughs) I'm here every week, et cetera, et cetera. When that is sort of your conversation with God, I'm not saying you ever say that out loud. You know better than say it out loud because there's somebody else that's probably breathed more dust than you have. But when that's our conversation with God, we're finding our righteousness in ourselves and what we have done. And it's not amazing to us that Jesus would show us grace and call us his friend. Well, Jesus hears this conversation going on, as he always does. The Pharisees, I love how they always think they're having a conversation, and Jesus is in the other room, but Jesus always knows exactly where it's going on, and he's able to confront them immediately. And so when Jesus heard it, this is verse 12 of Matthew chapter 9. 
He says back, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. What we struggle to understand sometimes is that there is no one who is well. When the Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that's not just a word to condemn or to rebuke. And if it's been used that way against you, I just want to say I'm sorry because that's not how God would intend that word to be said to you. What he's trying to illustrate to you is that there is no one who is well. We are all equal in our need. We are equal in the sickness that resides in our hearts. So when we say that there's no one or all have fallen short of the glory of God, what we're simply saying is not just you, but we're saying me and all. There's no one who is well. And Jesus has to tell them. He says to go and learn what this means, and he's going to get, I'll get there in just a moment. But he's explaining to them, you need to understand that you think you're well, when in reality your heart is deeply sick perhaps even more sick than the sinners that I'm sitting here having dinner with. Because the sickness of your heart has reached so deeply that you now find yourself in complete, there's no need for God in your life. Because you have the ability on your own to write and surround yourself by the law to say, I can achieve a holiness that would make me acceptable to God without anyone else. So many of us have curated this version of ourselves that we have no need. I'm going to talk more about this next week, but I'll just share with you very briefly. One of the reasons that it's so hard, have you ever found yourself in a group of Christians and, and perhaps in your heart you're kind of just wanting to go a little bit deeper? You're, you're, you're desiring a depth of relationship that you just can't seem to get to. It just kind of seems to, you hang out together, you do churchy things, and you kind of feel real Jesus-y as you leave, but you just feel kind of like, I don't know, like I, I was just longing for more. I wanted them to know me, and I wanted to know them, and all those sorts of things. You don't want to know why? Because this curated version of ourselves, we won't allow the walls to come down and for us to open up our hearts to be vulnerable with one another, to be real with one another, because that would say we are sick and we have need. One of the things that I love about our marriage ministry is that over and over and over again, for 16 weeks in a row, couples come and sit on this stage and they open up their hearts and they take down the walls and they are vulnerable and they just say, let me just tell you how sick I am, but let me tell you how beautiful friendship with Jesus is and the work that he's done in my heart and our hearts together. That's when you get real. That's for next week. But we've curated this, this thing, that, this resume. When we look at our lives and we look at the world around us, I hear it all the time. It seems like all these threats exist out there, right? There's so much evil in the world. There's so much unrighteousness out there. Not, not here, but out there. Never drawing kind of an inward look, but always looking external. And whatever the source of that might be, and there's a million sources right now that the world is pointing at, look, look, look. 
And Jesus, he's sitting down at a table with all of those threats and being their friends. See, his concern is not all of the evil and the unrighteousness that exists in the world. Do you know that Jesus has already conquered all of it and it will not win? All of those things that you're sitting at home, we're sitting at home, sort of just just so worked up over. This is my version of being worked up. I don't know what I'm doing here. (laughs) When one of my kids was babies, they would take their blanket and kind of noodle it in their hands. I think that's what I was doing just when they were kind of anxious. I don't know. But that's, we're so worked up over this. And his rebuke and his concern is not about all of that evil and all of the unrighteousness that was, again, sitting at his table with him, not even far out there, but just sort of surrounding him. He was worried. His greatest concern, the greatest threat, was all of those who found their righteousness within themselves, who said that we know the answers, we know what is right, we are going to tell you how to do all of life And if you just do it our way, you'll find righteousness and you'll find right standing with God. And Jesus is like, you're sick. You don't even know you're sick. These people acknowledge and understand the sickness that exists in their own hearts. Too often, we look for friendship. We surround ourselves in the things that make us comfortable, the things that we think make us right, that satisfy in the moment. And the reality is, as the proverb said, many counselors come to ruin. Every one of those friends at some point is going to walk away. Everything that you find justifies your life that isn't Jesus, brothers and sisters, it will fail you, it will disappear, it will fade away at some point. It will not satisfy It won't last. So Jesus says, I've come for those who are sick. And we are all sick. And what a gift, again, that he calls us out of love. And that love confounds the world. And he befriends those of us who are in need. He befriends us. Let me illustrate it this way. Do you remember... Some of you who have children, when you're firstborn, would complain about the next one in line or someone down the line about all the ways they were violating the law. Firstborns are generally the legalists of the family. They know all the rules. They know how to follow those rules, and they know how to not get rebuked by those rules. And so they have learned all of this, and they don't understand how we as parents could allow those rules to go unchecked out there in the world by their younger brothers. They don't understand that we've sort of figured out that maybe our own rules aren't quite as important as we thought they were. Or maybe we're just too exhausted to worry about them anymore. (laughs) They also don't understand that we know as parents, as wise fathers and mothers, that Each child is different, created differently. And we're done trying to convince the world that we're perfect parents. And so we've kind of just relaxed a little bit. And we've just sort of decided to let things go. Well, we're all those second and third siblings in the eyes of God. 
Now, the illustration breaks down a bit because God hasn't changed the rules. But God understood what Jesus illustrates here is that he came for those that realized they weren't able to keep the law. They were the ones in need. They weren't ever going to hold up. And Jesus befriends those of his in need as he shows us grace beyond our needs. He tells the disciples in verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus' friends, ultimately we know these disciples, many of these who are gathered at the table with him, would go and transform the world. And we are Christians today because of what these sick sinners did in response to Jesus' mercy. Because they had met the mercy of Christ. His friends changed the world. Now everyone talks about changing the world these days. And I'm talking about our modern context. And if you're showing mercy, it's because someone needs mercy, right? It's because there's a, a gap there. And they've done something that mercy is able to fill. Did the Pharisees, the legalists, who had kept all of the rules rightly, knew all of the right ways to act, knew all of the appropriate things to say and do and to not do, did they change the world? They didn't. They weren't the ones who turned the world upside down with a message of grace and hope that has lasted thousands of years now. No, it was those who had met the mercy of Christ but they were the ones who were right, and they were. They were keeping the law of God as best they could. Now, their hearts were wrong, but they were trying to do that. They were standing up for God. They were the ones who weren't going to let filthy sinners mess up all that God was doing. But Jesus changed the world because he befriended sinners like me, like Matthew, like you. And that's why he said, go and learn what this means. And still today, we need to learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Grace, friends, what I've learned in some ways over these last few weeks where I've spent a lot of alone time with Jesus, is that grace transforms. The law just puts to death. My understanding of what is right and wrong as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, as a friend, my ability to communicate that clearly, to discern that, to speak that, to point that out, to do all of those things, that's not what is going to transform. It doesn't transform my heart and it doesn't transform this church, my family, this community. What transforms is my ability and our ability to display the mercy of Christ and the grace of Christ to people who are sick because we understand the sickness in our own hearts. and We understand it well. Grace transforms, and Jesus' friends were messengers of that grace. There's no one better to be a messenger than someone who understands deeply. I sat alone. I rode my bike alone. I remembered who I am, and who I am is a sinner 
who's a friend of Jesus. I'm in awe that Jesus would call me friend like we used to sing long ago. Amazed that Jesus would call me a friend. And not just call me a friend, but invite himself over to dinner with me. And not just stay for dinner, but to go to a cross, to lay down his life because I'm his friend and he loved me enough to fulfill the words of the scripture that says there's no greater friend than this, that one who would lay down his life for his brother. Jesus laid down his life for me and for you as his friend. Last week we celebrated baptism and I told you as we celebrated that, that there was another ordinance of the church that we would celebrate. The second ordinance of the church is communion. And then when I talked about baptism, we talked about this picture that it paints. Is it tells us all, as we heard, it tells us, I'm a Christian. That's what everybody that came into this, the baptism waters, as you heard their testimony share, they said to us all, I am a Christian, and almost every single one of them said, I want to be baptized because I want you to know that I'm a Christian. One of them said, I want everyone to truly know that I am truly a Christian. She used truly twice because she wanted you to know that she was a Christian. And that's what we do in baptism. We tell the world that we are Christians. And in communion, we remind ourselves and we tell one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we're still Christians. That I'm still putting my hope in Jesus alone. Not my ability to keep the law, not my knowledge of what is right and wrong, but I still believe. Romans 5, 18 through 21, Paul, who understood this well, he wrote these words. It says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That act of justification or that act of righteousness was Jesus, the God-man, going to a cross and laying down his life. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinner, that's referring to Adam, so by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many were made righteous. Now the law, what the Pharisees loved to tout, it came to increase the trespass. Here's the beauty. The law tells us it does have a purpose. It's not for us to try to live our lives by in so much a way. It's to remind us we're hopeless to attain that level of righteousness. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is what we celebrate when we receive communion today. We celebrate not our righteousness. We don't come and receive from this table to tell one another, yeah, I figured it all out, just I want everybody to make sure you see me. No, we stand up, and only those of us who truly believe this, we stand up and we say, I was sick. I'm a sinner. I have no hope apart from being called Jesus' friend. I have no hope apart from what Jesus did when he went to a cross. And his body was broken and his blood was shed for me. That's what we're testifying to one another. 
That's why Paul, he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Essentially what he's saying is, don't come and receive these elements. Don't do this out of a religious practice. Don't do this because you're following the wave of the aisle that you sit on. This is reserved for those who say, I'm sick. I'm a sinner. I've received the grace of Christ. You don't have to be a member of this church to receive these elements, but you do have to be a Christian, Paul would say. The word of God would say. You have to say, I know what it means for Jesus' body and blood to be shed for me. And I'm testifying to my own heart right now, and I'm testifying to all the brothers and sisters that would see and sit around me that that's where my hope is found. I went and learned what it meant that Jesus desired mercy. And he showed it to me. I learned that by receiving it from him first. So Matt's going to lead us in a song here in just a moment. And as he's leading us, as we worship, I just want to invite you to pray and ask Jesus to remind you of the mercy that you have received. Perhaps you haven't thought of it in too long to consider all that Christ has done. If you found yourself, as I said those words, and you're saying, I don't know if I am a Christian, then just remain seated and ask the Holy Spirit of God to take whatever words were shared to allow them to unravel your heart a bit. Perhaps you'll end that time of prayer and you'll say, I do believe. I'm aware now more than I ever have been of what it means to be called a friend of Jesus. I know, yes, I am sick. I am a sinner. And I've received the mercy of Christ. And so when you say amen to that prayer, when you receive that message from Jesus, then stand up and run down this aisle and say, I'm a Christian and we'll baptize you next time. But you can come right now and say, I know what it means. I know what it means that Jesus' body and blood was shed for me because I am sick. But he's called me his friend and he called me his friend just this morning. Believe that this morning. Our elders are going to be down front. They will serve you the bread and hand you the juice. Um, We'd ask, this is just a little logistical, go on the outer aisles. You guys are going to these outer tables. You're going to come up through these aisles and kind of do a loop. That'd be, or come down this this way and go out that way. I'm new here, by the way. I haven't been here in a while. You guys in the center sections, if you'll come through the center and try your best to go there. But you just get up whenever you want. We won't tell you. We won't release you by aisle. Just kind of as the Spirit leads you, come receive. If you need gluten-free or you just don't like fighting crowds, those are in the back. Um, But please make sure our gluten-free friends are able to receive communion. Let me pray. And then let's receive from the Lord. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you call me a friend. I thank you for the mercy that you have shown me. I thank you that my life is not found in what I have done, could do, will do, have have anything on my resume, but my life is found only in you. Thank you for the grace and mercy you've shown me. And thank you for the opportunity to remember that this morning, to celebrate your kindness to us. Move now, Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we hope to see you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.